Jaspreet Bopperai and Don Nicholson with Greenwashed on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Welcome back. You're with Greenwashed. I'm Jaspreet, here with Don Nicholson, and our guest today is Jamie McFadden, an environmental consultant from Purunei, Canterbury. And I came across Jamie, I'd say, a couple of years ago when Groundswell started talking and there were talks of significant natural areas. And there was suddenly this name I had not heard of before, who was talking about SNAs in the 90s. So you certainly have a lot of experience under your belt, Jamie. Welcome to Greenwashed. Thank you. Yes, I, I have had a fair long time um, dealing with these issues, particularly SNAs. Can you believe mm-hmm. it's th- 32 years since the RMA was enacted and we still haven't got an absolute handle on how it was all supposed to work. But every year or two, there's another evolution of um, of, of of the RMA and someone's understanding of it. And of course, uh, Jaspreet's just mentioned SNAs and uh yeah, that seemed a foreign language 15, 20 years ago to a lot of people. Now even the people of Wellington City uh, understand perhaps what an SNA is. But on top of that, you're going to also talk about SASMs. So let's talk about SNAs to begin with and um, how they <laughs> evolved and the tension that they created and and what the upshot is for having an SNA. Yeah, Okay. Well, we, we were one of the uh, most unfortunate landowners in the country because we were one of the first to be um, to have an SNA applied over our, our farm. We had 120 hectares of our 800 hectare farm was mapped as an SNA, and that was in 1995. Um, for some reason, our council decided they wanted to be the first out of the blocks with this new generation district plan under the Resource Management Act um, and it bit them back um, big time. But anyway, the, the short short story of that was that um, I was just farming. I wasn't really interested in politics or learning about the RMA or any of that sort of stuff. But once the council had sort of classified 120 hectares of our farm, well, I took quite a lot of interest. Um, so I learned the RMA inside out, um, read a lot of case law, and we ended up taking our SNA case to the Environment Court, and I represented our family, and we won our case. And our case was to have 100 of that 120 hectares removed. Um, DOC was opposing us at the time, Department of Conservation and the Environmental Lobby, um, and but we won our case. And so a lot of what I have learned is, uh, is all um, just through the reading that I do. So that's a bit of a summary of the SNAs. And terms of what it actually means, these SNAs, significant natural areas, I mean, they're, they're promoted as a, as a tool, as a planning tool to protect um, areas on private land. But really they what they are is that they are a um, regulatory tool to control um, landowners, um, what you can and can't do on your land. But then from that, you have a number of flow-on effects. Probably one of the worst is that the more land that you have in an SNA, the more likely you're going to see a loss of property value and the saleability of your property. And there's plenty of evidence now to show that. So it essentially means that the more that um, you've done as a landowner to protect areas on your land, um, the more you're going to be penalised under the system. 
And the same applies once we get on to SASMs, these sites and areas of significance to Māori. Um, so the more you've got on the land, the worse off you'll be. Mm-hmm. And for our urban listeners, SNAs, as Jamie said, significant natural areas. But just in case if you think they are restricted to rural areas alone, no. Well over a thousand uh, urban property owners in Wellington last year were told that parts of their property were being earmarked by the council for, you know, just for conservation or whatever purpose. But what for me as a layperson, what it comes down to is property rights. Isn't that right, Jamie? That's what got you to court then. Yeah, it was just also the it's property rights, it's lack of respect for um, property owners. Uh, mm. I mean, we bought our farm, my parents bought our farm in a, in a genuine, you know, marketplace. Um, mm. And and then we, we lose those rights through a um, planning process that shows no respect at all towards the people that own the land. Um, and it also shows no respect to the people that are in, in care of the, you know, biodiversity or cultural or those values that are on your land. Um, and you mentioned the urban property owners, and that's, um, yeah, it's right throughout the country now. There was that case in the Kapiti where there were two, a couple of um, elderly people in their 70s that the council um, prosecuted, initiated prosecution um, proceedings against um, two elderly couples because they'd uh, got a garden servicing crew in to tidy up their gardens, you know, trim a few trees and remove dead wood and that sort of thing. And it turned out parts of their property had been mapped as SNAs and then suddenly they found themselves thrown into a prosecution process. And that was appalling. These were, you know, genuine good people, elderly, retired people caught up in that system. Eventually the the council copped so much flack that they pulled the um, prosecution's proceedings out. And mm-hmm. um, yeah, it was just a it was just a mess. And so just for listeners' benefit, am I correct in saying that the RMA of 1991 has no compensation clause for takings in the public interest? It doesn't operate like the Public Works Act. Uh, so so basically councils can put lines and, and draw, draw on your property or create uh, some sort of right on your property, but they don't have to compensate for it. Is that is that accurate, Jamie? Yeah, so they can they can apply these classifications, whether it's wetland mapping or SNAs or landscapes. You know, there's there's farmers around here that have got six or seven different classifications across their properties. And you look at their farm on a map, and they've got all of these shadings of different um, classifications. And and the thing is that, like I mentioned before, your your loss of your um, saleability of your property, the more zonings or classifications you've got on the pro- property and the more of your land that's captured under these stricter ones like SNAs, um, you, that's you, you, impacting the saleability and the property value. And there's no no compensation. Um, and they're just riding roughshod over, over, over property owners. Yeah, and I recall in the drafting of the RMA in 1991, that uh, apparently there was a compensation clause in it and it was taken out at the last minute. And, you know, I it's my personal view, Jamie, that ever since that happened, that is why we've had this rise of uh, property right attack from all manner of people. Now, um, people that I sort of 
represented a, a long time ago seem to want to respect, well, we all respect our own property. Why is it that the busybodies outside the farm gate seem to want to have so much say or even your urban gate have so much say over your property? Is it is it a valid concern they have? Why? Yeah, it's interesting when you get into the debate around the council table with um, bureaucrats and planners and all that sort of thing. Um, they seem to get it into their mind that they are now in charge and they've been delegated this responsibility to look after or protect areas on your land. And I said, to, as I said in one of the hearing processes, I said, at the end of the day, it's the actions and inactions of the property owner that determine the protection of whether it's SNAs or SASMs or wetlands. And I said, it's not you guys. It's actually the property owner. And if you have not got the property owner on board, then then you, you can't claim you're protecting anything. Yeah. And why we have uh, got you here today, especially Jamie, is because this new term that you just dropped there, SASM, which is defined as sites, areas of significance to Maori, figured in a newspaper article this week just gone. Stuff carried this article, long time, Farming families object to council's handling of Maori designations. And this is in the Timaru District Council area where farmers, it says the Timaru District Council has sent letters to the first of 4,000 property owners in the district who would be impacted by regulations fitting into five different categories. What is what is happening? This is, seems to have, we have all been so focused on significant natural areas, the SNAs, this, this SASMs hardly figures in anyone's vocabulary. I haven't heard any of our levy-funded bodies, at least informing farmers about this. Yeah, so that the SASMs or sites and areas of significance to Maori is, it actually comes from the same section of the RMA as significant natural areas. So while we've had a lot of councils dealing with significant natural areas and, and doing it through, like quite a few of them have done it through mapping, I don't know why, but there hasn't been a similar process done to uh, for, for, for the sites and areas of significance to Murray until recently. So it's only been in the last two years, and it's almost like someone's kicked the councils up the backsides and said, you guys have forgotten about another part of the RMA that talks about... Um, you know, these areas of sites and areas of significance to Maori. And so now what we've got suddenly right around across the country, I don't know how many councils are doing it now, but there's quite a lot. There's quite a lot out there mapping these areas all over private land. And so it's coming to um, attention of everyone right now because councils um, are suddenly um, doing this. So there's been some sort of mechanism, whether it's at a political level or or pressure level that's got councils going on this one. Mm. Now, these property owners in this newspaper article seem to say that they've been caught by surprise. So how have these properties been mapped for SASMs? Have they been just desktop exercises? Has somebody actually come and seen those in person? How is What's the process here? So the process that, um, I mean, I've looked into this across several councils, particularly Timaru, Waitaki, and the West Coast councils. And the process is pretty similar with them all. So what they do is that they they draw a, a whole lot of circles or a whole lot of areas. 
Now, those, those mapped areas are not necessarily accurate. Well, they're not accurate. They're not accurate. They're just uh, like on the West Coast, you see these big sort of egg-shaped circles over a whole lot of properties. And what they say is that somewhere within that area is a site or area of significance to Māori. But it happens to capture, it might capture eight properties or 20 properties or 50 properties. And, and so somewhere in that area is a site or area of significance to Māori, but they don't identify exactly where. So that's the first thing. They don't identify exactly where. And they say that they can't do that because of the sensitivities around these cultural values. This, this, the, um, the second thing that they're doing is, um, is that, like on the West Coast, when they did it, they bought the maps out, but when they bought the maps out and the rules, it took immediate legal effect. So what we had is, um, I, I remember one farmer ringing me up, and he said he received a letter in the mail. His whole farm was mapped as a site and area of significance to Maori. He had no prior consultation, none at all. And the rules took immediate legal effect. And, and those rules were quite, he was in the strictest category. So those rules essentially turned him into a non-compliant activity, just like that. Wow. No consultation, no consultation at all. And I mean, this, this is New Zealand. This is New Zealand. <laughs> I mean, how can they do that? I mean, this is, this, this is just taking rights off people and taking over private property. Just, just it's, it's like theft. It is theft. 100% it's theft. And, uh, you know, it's, you've answered my next two questions pretty much right there. The fact that there's no way they can have to pinpoint exactly what they've said is sensitive or, or important to them on, on a particular block of land and the fact that it has instant legal effect. Yeah. Um, just it's, it's outrageous, uh, to be honest. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, people that know me, um, Jamie have, know that my whole ethos is around private property rights and the sanctity of that. And I find in New Zealand, this supposed de democratic process just being usurped um, so easily uh, seems seems unbelievable. But that's where we are in 2023. And yeah. I think and you're right in saying that something happened. The, flick, the switch was flicked in the last four to six years. And I assume it's around the United Nations uh, Declaration of Rights of Indigenous People and all that sort of stuff. It's probably and hey, poor, poor, all linked in. But something, something has made that flick a switch flick. And um, but uh, even point. practically speaking, Don, one of these uh, people who was being quoted in this article, Peter and Stephanie McCulloch of uh, John Talbot Road, Temuka, their family has farmed the land for more than 150 years. So in that much time, they don't know anyone who's come on and staked the claim. How do you confirm who it's one person's word against the other? In any case, if there was one, well, for the last century and a half, it probably hasn't been. So this is, uh, I, I don't know words. I'm actually at a loss for words. What do you call this other than an outright theft and attack on private property rights? Jamie, you said you have figures how what is the you know number of or oh, the amount of land that's been claimed out there yeah so Timaru, yeah so timaru district we put our groundswell have put an informa official information act request into timaru district council so the timaru district is 273000 hectares 
143,000 hectares of that is SASM. So that's 53% of the district is SASM. 53%. Um, And that's, yeah, 4,000, we got back, it was 4,450 property owners. Um, But that's incredible. 53% of the district has been captured as SASM. And so, I mean, West Coast, we haven't looked at that in terms of the amount of area. A lot of that area is already in Docker State anyway. But that's that's just Timaru as one example. What do they propose to do with this once, say, such a thing has been done? Is there a process after that? Like this land has been mapped as a SASM. What comes next? Yeah. Who comes yeah. on next? Yeah, so what, what happens next is that in the districts we've looked at, those three that I've mentioned earlier, Mm. They have these SASMs, and so you as a property owner, you need to, if you're affected, you need to understand what category of SASM you've got. So each of these districts has a different um, number of categories, and depending on what category you're in, is um, there's different rules. So some categories don't have much rules at all, whereas, so it's a spectrum. So if you're in category one, there's there's hardly any rules. If you're in category four, for example, there's a lot of rules. Um, so yeah, from a property owner's point of view, that's that's what they need to understand. But I guess I guess you could go into a lot of the detail of that. But the the the, the essence here is that what and it's the same with the SNAs. What we're seeing here is that they're using a tool, which is the RMA to classify land and it's a flawed system because it's the same with SASMs as it is with the SNAs. They're actually turning these biodiversity values or these cultural values, they're turning them into a liability. So the legislation is doing this. It's destroying the values that they're actually trying to protect because those values are becoming, there's no compensation, there's poor consultation, um, the loss of property values, um, the, the, the hassles with bureaucratic interference, all that sort of thing. So they should not be using the RMA to, to um, try and protect these values. They should use a different system, and that's what Groundswell is proposing, is a different system that works with people, works with property an- owners in a, in a respectful manner, and actually turns those values, whether it's cultural values or Indigenous biodiversity values, turns them into an asset and something that, that people are proud to have on their property. Because at the moment, no one wants these things on their property because the, the councils and the RMA system has turned them into a liability. And I think okay. that's the core of the argument. The RMA needs to, with the reform that the government are doing, they actually need to throw all this um, SNA SASMs out, out of the RMA system and put them into a different system. Well, you look in uh, Western Australia, they've had something similar in the last, uh, it's only been in place about six weeks and it's already been thrown out. Um, We've had 32 years to build to this and uh, they have six weeks and the Australian farmers and pastoralists got rid of it pretty quickly as because it actually went down to apply to pretty much um, town sections. But the thing that gets me here, Jamie, I agree with you 100% so far. But we've now got farm plans uh, that are sort of supposedly going to happen in uh, certain areas of the country and in time, no doubt, all areas of the country. Will these SASMs be um, made to be reported on in farm plans? Because if they are, I think there's going to be a bloodbath. 
They already are, Don, and that's well, what a lot go. of people a lot of people don't realise. So I've read the legislation relating to farm plans through several times. So I've got my head around it. These cultural sites are part of your freshwater farm plan system, mm. um, and and yeah, these freshwater farm plans are a very 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 dangerous tool. Um, of control. It's all about control over farmers. That's what these freshwater farm plans are. They're not They're not there to help the farmers. They're not there to work with the farmers in a partnership or in a respectful manner. They're a control mechanism for, for the government. And when you read the legislation, that's why, you know, and amongst consultants, I converse with, you know, a lot of my consultant fellow consultant mates and and all the consultants are saying no one wants to be a certifier no one wants to be an auditor because they know how much of a mess this freshwater farm plan legislation is but not only that it's extremely prescriptive not just for the farmers but for the certifiers and the auditors and there's a huge amount of prescription around what you can and can't do you talked about training earlier on i mean the training that certifiers have to go through and then they have to be um they have to be monitored by the regional council. So, I mean, no one will want to be a certifier. Well, there is a group of people in New Zealand that would love to be in the pay of that sort of thing. Um, we know <laughs> who they we know who they are. But interestingly, Jamie, you're you've been around as long as I have been in this caper, and uh, I heard terms like social license and social license to operate probably fifteen years ago. And I thought that was a noose that was going to get ever tightened. And that appears to me linking farm plans to and SASMs and SNAs and your property rights. That looks like the noose is just about strangling farmers. And as Jaspreet's got a or landowners, and as Jaspreet has got a new saying, comply till you die, till you die. I think we're getting there. Uh, yeah, we one, are. Yeah. Yep. And the, so, the social license thing's quite interesting because who coined that? And, I mean, that came through the Fish and Game days when they had the Dirty Dairy campaign and they were all out war on farmers. Yep. So, and, and, and Jasper and I have talked about this on the show before. We've got now nudge units um, operating around the world and they know how to put phrases together that destabilise uh, things like we're talking about tonight, like property rights. And yep. so... Um, yeah, it's a, it's a vicious circle we're in, and I, I don't have your faith. There will be people that will want to be employed in this space and mapping and sort of being writing the prescriptions for farms. So farmers, um, you know, thankfully Groundswell's out there doing the hard yards, and, and so hopefully Fed Farmers is too. But if it wasn't for the likes of Groundswell and Fed Farmers, this stuff would just get away unabated. So What's next? Are we are we going to get the lid on this, or is it going to require a massive change of government policy and direction, or or what's next? What's next? Well, that's a damn good question, isn't it? Um, <laughs> what what I think's next is that we've actually we've got to get um, our, our all of our industry. So beef and lamb and dairy and in federated farmers need to wake up and and understand a lot more about what is going on in terms of SNAs, freshwater farm plans and that sort of thing. Um, they need to get a get they haven't got a good grasp of the implications of these policies, the cumulative impact of these policies at a grassroots level and how it affects all 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 different types of farmers. Um, they haven't got their head around that and they haven't got 
they tend to get drawn into to debating the issue of the moment, whether it's emissions pricing or whether it's fresh water. And they need to look at the whole picture because when you look at the whole picture, you realise that the environmental legislation here in New Zealand, it's stuffed. It's When you look at what's happening here in Canterbury, the consensus system's in paralysis. And I mean, our regional council, our chair and one of our councillors, when I met with them, they've admitted this. They've said the system is too complex. It's just the whole thing's falling apart. So the whole planning and consenting system around environmental issues is falling apart, the RMA. And the, the, the new reform that the government are proposing is actually going to make it worse. And that's where federated farmers have been really good because they've been saying this new reform is actually completely unworkable, and it is. So where sure. to now? We actually need, we need our farming groups to stand up and join with the likes of Groundswell and yourselves and um, these other, a lot of the smaller farming groups that are saying, look, this thing is completely unworkable. Stand up and say it's unworkable and let's do it all together. We need local government too. We're like, we're putting pressure on councils. We met with Environment Southland while we were down there and we said, you know it's unworkable. You know it cannot be implemented. Your role is as, as an advocate on behalf of your community. You need to stand up to the government with the other regional councils and say it is unworkable. It is unimplementable. So everyone needs to get a bit of courage and actually stand up for the people that they're representing. So do you, you know, over time, we've watched uh, the Fed's independent adv advocacy role slowly being uh, sort of infiltrated by an advocacy role by Beef and Lamb and their predecessors and Dairy and Z and its predecessor. I mean, effectively, in the early days, they never used to be political advocates. It was left to the independent voice, Fed farmers. And I think ever since these... Uh, yeah, beef and lamb and dairy and Z have been looking for a job expansion or you know, wider remit. This has been made harder for the defence. Uh, mm -hmm. Fed farmers used to be the sole operator in this space, yeah. and it was really, really tight and tough. And it just seems to have had a weakened resolve. Uh, that's one point I'd like to make. Second point is you talked about ECAN. Um, obviously, ECAN's all of Canterbury's uh, sort of environment, uh, but the district councils, the territorials working under that are implementing these SASMs, but are they still under the auspices of the regional council to do that? It, it depends on your own regional council and what policies or requirements they have in each regional council. And if you look at our local district council here, our Huranui district council, when there was a request to have cultural landscapes, um, this was through a submission process, there was a request to have cultural landscapes ma mapped across our district. Our district council turned it down. They turned it down. And they said, no, we will not do this through a submission process. We would like to have full public consultation, full consultation with affected landowners before doing any mapping. Um, and so district councils have just, what's the word? I mean, they've let the communities down because they've just rolled with this um, and accepted it, whereas you've got some like Huranui actually prepared to put a, put a, put a stand and say, no, this is not acceptable. We, we, we would do this through a proper process. So, yeah, the district councils have, have got a role there to play in terms of representing their communities. Yep, yep. I, I agree, but uh, what this other point you had made, Don, the first one, we don't have uh, levy-funded bodies doing what is right, then what are they actually doing? 
I saw a post a couple of days back on Facebook where Daddy NZ says, farmers, let's brainstorm, uh, you know, ideas about saving money. And you'd be amazed how many people said, we need to stop funding you guys. You know, that's one way farmers can save money. But just going on to Daddy NZ's website, under their research, the videos that are available, the top three, the first is disruption in the workplace. The second is understanding cultural diversity to create high-performing teams. And all of this sort of social engineering has come under the purview of these bodies that were supposed to be strictly research and development. And that is one thing, you know, I absolutely cannot abide by. This forced, enforced, legislated diversity and which is where they're thinking. And if you look at what a big uh, bureaucracy Darien's in itself has, with very little output to show for it, it, it is disappointing as a farmer. And especially yeah. when you have no say in the levies, they're just deducted from your paycheck. So the, the reason why, I mean, my view is the reason why we're getting hit with so many unworkable regulations is because our advocacy system is allowing that to happen. And the reason why our advocacy system is allowing that to happen is because Federated Farmers is so undermined by the industry groups. And I mean, I've had a lot the last five years, I've had a lot to do with people in feds, people in beef and lamb, people in dairy and zed. I've got a lot of respect for people in Federated Farmers in terms of, um, you know, the conversations we're having with people in Federated Farmers like yourself and Federated Farmers guys, really good guys, um, passionate about trying to represent farmers, but they're caught in the system that if they try and push too hard, then they're left out and beef and lamb and dairy and zed end up the only ones talking to the government. So we've got a major problem within advocacy, and and until we sort that out, um, farmers are going to be a lot a lot worse off. Probably, I would summarise it with one comment that a federated farmers person said to me not long ago, and he said, you know, it's just as well we've got groundswell, you guys doing what you're doing, because you're actually doing what federated farmers should be doing, but we can't do because we're trapped in the system with these industry groups, and that that's it. That's it in a in a, in a nutshell. And those of us that have been around long enough uh, to to see all this play out, Jamie, uh, would agree. And in fact, 2005, when uh, Charlie Pedersen was the president of Federated Farmers yeah. elected, just come in, we warned about that at around my very first board mo- board meetings with Charlie. And in my tenure at Feds, we were warning about this all the time, how yeah. the the levy bodies were slowly coming in to cut our lunch. Yeah. And and here we are. And of course, the government of the day loves the division. They love yes. it. Yeah. And that's that's why farmers have um without one voice, we're uh, we're really struggling. But yeah, look, we just have to keep on doing what we do because as farmers, we can't take our business anywhere else and uh, we're trapped and we are sort of naked in public. But the but the bottom line for me is, and I think it's for you, the government overreach has gone too far. And the yep. expectation of a select group in society has gone too far. The majority of the community don't want this stuff. They know that they're partially funding it through their rates and their taxes, this, this expansion of government remit that doesn't add any value to, to New Zealand at all in, in many ways. So, yeah, Jamie, what's uh, what's next? You're just going to keep up the advocacy, keep up the groundswell work? and Yeah, um, yep. so we've... Yeah, we've got the meetings we've just had down in Southland on the freshwater farm plans. Um, 
what's next in terms of groundswell? I mean, initially groundswell, we we established to support our farming groups as a you know to give empower empowering our farming groups to stand up on on our behalf. We weren't we weren't looking to get involved in advocacy, but as of late, we've actually moved into advocacy a lot more because our farming groups are not doing it. The Freshwater Farm Plans is a classic example. We're holding meetings in Southland and um, next week I'm going up to Waikato. So we've got meetings uh, on Tuesday and Wednesday at uh, Morrinsville, Tikwiti and Te Awamudu, um, on the Freshwater Farm Plans. And the difference with um, Groundswell also is that we tell farmers the truth and the, the full information about these regulations um, because our advocacy groups um, and even the councils, they do not give the, the farmers the full information because they've actually already compromised or they're involved with the government in helping roll it out. So they don't want to be giving farmers the full information because it was because it would give farmers a fright. So we just tell farmers exactly what the legislation means. Um, and at the moment, it seems like, in my view, we're the only voice doing that, um, particularly when it comes to SNAs, freshwater farm plans, um, in terms of a rural advocate. Um, and I'm, I'm actually a really strong, strong believer, having been burnt with SNAs in the early days, one of my, I guess you'd call it one of my key principles is that people should have full and accurate information about policies and regulations that are in, impact them. It's just being honest and truthful and, and, and that, that, that drives me. Yeah, and I've got a motto that um, there's, if, it's sim if you can express something simply, you will likely get the truth. And currently what I'm observing how, or how I'm observing you express yourself, Jamie, is you express stuff simply but the people that you've just mentioned will not. They make it really convoluted, really awkward, and hard, and and almost boring to want to be involved in. So keeping it simple will give the truth to people. And I look, I take my hat off to you, Jamie, because you express it really, really well. Um, I dare yeah. say, experience, experiences showing. Yeah, Absolutely. well, I guess, guess one of the examples for me was over the sequestration credits. Yeah. And you, you had our industry groups and our farming groups saying that farmers should be able to claim for sequestration credits, you know, with the emissions pricing and um, that they should be able to get their riparian, you know, plantings and all that sort of thing. What they didn't tell farmers about was the fine print that they'd actually all agreed to, they'd developed themselves and agreed to. This is Beef and Lamb, Federated Farmers, Dairy NZ, that agreed to that fine print. And when I looked at that fine print, I realised that virtually none of our riparian plantings over the last 25 years would qualify for the credits that they had designed, our own industry groups and farming groups had designed. So, you know, it was that sort of misinformation that, um, that really annoys me. Farmers should have the truth, and we're not getting that from our, from our farming groups. We're not getting it from the government, and we're not getting it from the councils. <laughs> So that's why we are so grateful to you, Jamie, that we are at least getting some truth and, you know, straight shooting from you. Now, I, Don and I are really grateful you could come on today and we wish you all the best for your Waikato meetings. And for our listeners, keep a watch on these terms, SNAs and SASMs, because uh, like it or not, they are heading your way soon. And it's not just going to be confined to the rural population. That was... Jamie McFadden, Chair of the Rural Advocacy Network, with me and Don on Greenwash. Thank you so much for joining us. 
Have a great day. Thank you. Jaspreet Bopperai and Don Nicholson with Greenwashed on RCR, Reality Check Radio.